we want to start a new series this evening. And for the next uh, few weeks, I want to talk to you about the life of David. We won't uh, cover everything that uh, the Bible says about him uh, per se. It'd take us too long, but uh, but we want to cover some things. And uh, it, David's an interesting figure because he not only is a is a type, an Old Testament type, an example of Jesus, the Messiah, but he's also an Old Testament type of the um, new covenant man, you and I. And as a result, uh, to kind of lay some groundwork for the things that we want to talk about tonight, uh, Israel came to the point where they said, we want to be like other nations, we want a king. God said uh, through the prophet Samuel, you don't want a king because the king will tax you, tax you and he'll take your children and, and uh, use, him, use them for your, his service and so forth. All kinds of bad stuff is going to happen if you uh, try to follow a man instead of follow God. But they said, uh, people said, no, everybody else has got a king, we want a king too. So God gave them a king and his name was Saul. Now, Saul was, um, started off on the right track. He, he certainly looked the part. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He had the look of the king and, and, uh, and so forth. And, and apparently, his, uh, uh, in the beginning, his character was uh, uh, worthy of the position that he held because he was a real humble man. But as time went on, as he began to, to rule and reign, he got lifted up in pride, apparently. And uh, he got to the point where he was willing. He thought so much of himself that he was willing to do two things, and these two things destroyed his his um, legacy. One was uh, he became willing to disobey the commandment of God. God told him to do things in a certain way, and he decided to do it his own way. And then the second thing, and, and this may be more important than the first, is that he felt like he was worthy as the king of Israel to stand in the place of the priest and do the priest's job. He offered a sacrifice that only the priest was uh, was separated and ordained to to, uh, to make. Now, when uh, uh, when Saul disobeyed God, this is chapter 13, I believe, about verses 13 and 14, somewhere around there. Samuel talks to him and says that God's going to take the kingdom away from him. And he makes a statement in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. He said, God sought for a man after his own heart to put in the position of the king, to take Saul's place. Well, we know that that person turns out to be David. Now, in chapter 16, uh, it tells us about how David was anointed. It's interesting to note David was anointed three times during his life. The first in secret here that we're going to talk about when Samuel came to his house. The second time he was anointed by the men of Judah to be their king. And then the third time after he took uh, the, the kingdom of Israel, Saul's place literally, and um, uh, consolidated both Judah and Israel together, then, uh, then he was anointed the third time. This first time, however, had to be in secret because Samuel has already, Samuel the prophet and the priest, has already told Saul that God is uh, uh, displeased with Saul's reign, displeased with Saul being the king, and so he's going to look for somebody else. So from that point, it kind of created a problem for Saul because he didn't want to give up his spot. I mean, it's not like Saul said, well, you're right, Samuel, I've done the wrong thing. Let me just step out of the way and let God get somebody else. That's not the way it went. And so everything that was done, by, particularly by Samuel, related to God's plans and future plans, uh, had to be done in secret. So he went in secret to the house of Jesse, where God told him to go. And in chapter 16, um, he goes to Jesse's house and uh, at the direction of the Holy Ghost. And the Lord tells him that uh, the, reason that he's gonna, the reason he's sending him there to Jesse's house is to anoint the next king. Well, he tells Jesse, who's the father of... Uh, the household, what's going on, and, and that makes him afraid. He's afraid he's going to be singled out and, and um, uh, persecuted by Saul, and he, Saul might come and, 
uh, destroy his house and his family and, and so forth. But, but God had a plan with this, and he was keeping everything secret. And so he says to uh, Jesse, uh, Samuel says to Jesse, bring in your sons. And so he brought them in by the oldest. The oldest was Ediab, and he had the look of Saul. I mean, he fit the part. He was a tall, good-looking, dark-haired guy and, and, and everything. And Samuel said to himself, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And the Lord says something to him. And this is First Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So it tells us right there that God's looking for somebody. He's already identified through Samuel that God's looking for a man after his own heart. And God's looking for the heart, the right heart, in the next king. Well, it turns out that all the, the sons of Samuel are brought before, or the sons of Jesse are brought before Samuel, seven of them. And each time the Lord said, no, nope, that's not him. That's not him. That's not him. Now, let me ask you a question. This comes to being led by the Holy Ghost. Why didn't the Lord tell Samuel, I want you to go down to Jesse's house and find the, the son called David and anoint him? That would have seemed to be simpler, wouldn't it? But instead, he says, go down to Jesse's house and anoint the next king. So Samuel gets there. He doesn't know who he's looking for. So he takes them one by one. And each time one of them is brought before him, the Lord says, nope, not him. Nope, not him. Seven times. Now, that's all the sons that Jesse has in the house. And so Samuel's kind of perplexed. He says, is this all your sons? The Lord hadn't chosen any of these. And Jesse says, well, it's everybody except the youngest. He's out in the field taking care of the sheep. Now, we think of she, uh, shepherding as, uh, because we look at the Lord, shepherd, the Lord as our shepherd in Psalm 23, we think of shepherding as being a, um, a quaint, rural, pleasant, um, idyllic type of, type of job. But folks, you need to realize shepherds in, in the land of Israel, shepherds were necessary, but they were the lowest class of society. They were rejected by the Jewish culture the religious Jews, because their, their, uh, their job kept them away from temple worship. It kept them away from offering the sacrifices that, uh, that the, the Jews were uh, commanded to make and stuff like that. Shepherds were looked at as the lowest crust of society. And so this job that David has in keeping the sheep, it's not a coveted position. It's not like Jesse has gone through his children and realized that David, is there's something special about this kid. Let's make him the shepherd. I doubt very seriously if it's anything other than it's been handed down from the oldest to the next to the next to the next. And Samuel's the youngest. He gets stuck. I know it was that way in my house. Growing up, I had an older brother. He was three years older. And anything mom or dad told him to do, he'd wait till they left the room and he'd go tell me to do it. Well, I think that's just human nature, isn't it? I mean, we don't want the junk jobs. We'll do the things that we enjoy. We'll do the things that we like. But David's left keeping the sheep. So Jesse says, bring him. Go send for him. Bring him. He's out tending the sheep. He's not next door. The job that he has is the reason, is the cause why he's not there in the house. And so Samuel says, we're not going to sit down and eat. We won't rest until he comes. And so they finally bring him in. And then he anoints him. He says, this is it. The Lord speaks to Samuel and said, he's the one. Now, again, I'm going to have to ask the question. Why didn't the Lord tell Samuel up front which one it was going to be? See, that's the way we want it to be. We want to have all the information. We want to have all the, the things lined out so that we know just exactly how it's going to go. Because so often people, if they don't have everything just lined out in front of them, they won't wait for the Lord to say this way or that way or this thing or that thing. 
They just get part of the information. Let's go here. And they run there and do the first thing that's in front of them. And that's not always God. I'm glad Samuel knew that. So anyway, he anoints David to be the next king of Israel. Goes his way. As I said, this was done in secret. Now here's the question. Why did God pick David? We already know from 1 Samuel 13 verse 14 that God's looking for a man after his own heart. But the Bible doesn't tell us anything about David until a few verses later. It says that, um, uh, well, I guess we'd better back up in verse 14. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. That's the really poor translation. Evil spirits don't come from the Lord. It just simply means the Lord allowed Samuel or uh, excuse me Saul to be distressed Saul went into a fit of depression God didn't send it what caused that was that he had disobeyed God and once the uh, once David was anointed to be king of Israel there's a part of the anointing that was on him to be king that he was aware of left him and he knew it was gone and so now he's troubled but it's not God that's troubled him he's probably tormented by his own actions by his own behavior And Saul's servant said unto him, verse 15, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. Thank you very much, translators. You really helped us out on this. Let our Lord now command thy servants which are before thee to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp. And it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee that he shall play with his hand and thou shalt be well. Now, folks, I've got to say it again. If evil spirits come from God, why should we try to resist them? And if evil spirits come from God, why did Jesus cast them out? Jesus said everything he did, he did by the will of the Father. So if it's the will of God for somebody to have an evil spirit, the same will of God for them to be cast out, God's schizophrenic. He can't figure out whether he's coming or going. But they knew what the answer was. Let's get somebody to play a song. Music is always soothing when you're troubled. Saul said, verse 17, to his servants, provide me now a man that can play well and bring him unto me. Now, verse 18 is the only indication that we have of what it means to be a man after God's own heart. God said himself through Samuel, I'm looking for it. Well, really, Samuel said it, but he got the information from God. So he said, the Lord is looking for a man after his own heart. Well, David turns out to be that man. So what I want you to see in verse 18, First Samuel 16, verse 18, there are five characteristics that are characteristics of a man after God's own heart, being after God's own heart, first of all. Or we could even say it this way, characteristics of a king. The Bible says we've been called to be kings and priests. These are characteristics that we should have in our life as well. Let's look at them. Verse 18, then answered one of the servants and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, that is cunning in playing, and a mighty mighty valiant man, and a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. So they sent for David, and then he came and, and helped and soothed Saul when he was troubled. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, where is David from? Is David from the big city? Nope. He's from a little city called Bethlehem. Now, if you go to Bethlehem today, it's a real small place. It's several miles away from uh, Jerusalem, which is a big city. But at that time, Jerusalem was nothing. It was a bigger city and a bigger town, certainly, than uh, than Bethlehem. Bethlehem was just a a farming community, a little small community. Probably no more than 100 people that lived in that territory, in the the neighborhood or the area of, of Bethlehem. Seven of those sons, or, or seven were older than, uh, seven sons of Jesse were older than David. So they're probably the biggest family around. Now, Jerusalem 
we think of Jerusalem as being the city of the Lord. It wasn't until after David became king of Israel. He's the one that moved the ark to, to uh, Jerusalem. He's the one that set up Jerusalem as the capital city. Up until this point in time, or at this point in time, when Saul is, uh, um, sends for David, Jerusalem is just a bigger town, but there's nothing special about it. But David's not even from Jerusalem. He's from the, the, the backwoods, so to speak. He's from the country. Now, what are country folks like? I don't want you to think about current times because we have things that connect us to other people. There's social media and there's internet and there's smartphones and iPhones and all that kind of stuff. David grows up in a, in a town where his world is defined by the road that he walks down every morning. He can't go down to the library and, think, and, and find out and check out a book about foreign lands. His life consists of taking care of the sheep, milking the cows if they've got them, feeding the chickens if they've got them, gathering eggs if the chickens are laying eggs. His world is his family. There's nothing going on. Now, what I want you to see about David is he's not from the big city. They didn't go to Juilliard to find the best musician. There was no such thing. But one of the servants, without having to look, one of the servants says, I've heard of this young boy, and he's cunning in playing. Now, the first characteristic that I want you to see about David is that he's cunning in playing. David, instead of spending his days thinking, what a junk job I've been given to have these sheep. I'd rather be playing. I'd rather be chunking rocks at trees and stuff like that. Instead of spending his time doing other things that he might have rather enjoyed to do, he spent his time developing himself and his interests. He had a desire for excellence. He was cunning in playing. He spent his time developing something. Now, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 16, that a man's gift will make room for him. So much of the the preaching that I hear and see, well, I don't hear it. I don't listen to it too much. But what I see being taught, by and large, is people talking about desire, talking about passion, about how God wants people with passion. Well, passion for what? Most of what I see is is being preached is people's passion to be great. I wonder if David ever aspired to be king. I doubt very seriously if being king affected their lives in any way whatsoever except taxes and war. Outside of that, what's a king? And who cares? David doesn't dream of being great. David just applies himself to be excellent. See, passion is no good unless it's directed in the right way. It's the same thing as having a dream. Oh, God wants you to dream big. Really? Well, the devil wants you to dream big too. I remember when Brother Hagin was telling the story about God ministering to him and, and uh, he, Jesus appeared to him in a vision and was talking to him about the gift of prophecy. He said the Lord told him that there's a counterfeit to prophecy. He said that the Lord spoke to him in this vision. He said, I want to let you hear it so that you can tell the difference between the real thing and the fake, the false. And so he heard this and it said, it talked about how the Lord is going to do this, that, and the other. And then right on the tail end of it, and thou shalt be great. Thou ministry shall go beyond the borders and whatever else it said. And so the Lord asked him afterwards, he said, could you tell? Can you tell the difference? And Brother Hagin said, yeah, the false is talking about me instead of you. He said, that's it. Well, there's a lot of that going on in the the church world today because it's all about celebrity. It's all about who's who. 
Folks, God's not impressed with who's who. God's impressed with people that will take their, the things that he's put on the inside of them and develop them. I mentioned Proverbs eighteen sixteen: a man's gift will make room for him. That gift only makes room if it's developed. Otherwise, it might be the, like the one talent guy that Jesus talked about that buries his talent in the ground. Jesus wasn't real happy with him. So the first thing that we want you to see about David is that he developed himself in excellence. David was always trying to make himself better. They say, now I don't know if they have historical evidence of this or proof, but they say that David developed, invented over a dozen instruments in his lifetime. Also, he could play and worship, the, worship God and worship the things of God. We know of many of David's psalms. We know that David was uh, not just a farm boy, but he could write, which was very unusual of the day because he wrote and recorded many of the psalms that, uh, that he sang to the Lord out when he was a shepherd boy. Many of the psalms are after he becomes king and after he become, begins to rule, but not all of them. Some of them are when he was out there doing nothing that nobody could hear. Now, here's what I want to ask you. If it wasn't David's desire for excellence, how would anybody have ever known that he played? Who's he playing for? He's not gathering crowds by the roadside. He's playing for the sheep, for the stars, and for God. Why? Because he had a desire to be as good in the things that he was able to do as he could be. We need to be people that are always developing ourselves. One of the things about excellence, you remember over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it talks about uh, manifestations of the Spirit. Paul talks about gifts of prophecy. He talks about the gift of faith. He talks about working in miracles. He talks about all those things. And then he says, yet I show you a more excellent way. See, one of the ways we can develop ourselves in excellence is developing ourselves in the love of God. I see a lot of people that want to know the things of God. They want to know, they want knowledge about the things of God. But there's not too many people that will take that knowledge and develop themselves in love. They'd rather develop themselves in faith. You remember Paul said, if I had all faith and could move mountains, if I don't have love, I don't have anything. How would Paul know that? There's only one way he could know that, and that is if he developed himself in love. Here's one thing that some people have a hard time with, and, and I guess it's a matter of spiritual maturity, although some people never do seem to grow out of it. And that is... We seem to think that knowledge is going to be the thing that puts people over. And there's no question the Bible says, God said, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. But it's not knowledge alone that's going to put people over. Because the Bible says the sweetness of the lips increases learning. In other words, it doesn't matter what you know. If you can't present it in a way for somebody to be able to accept it and receive it, you can know everything in the world and be no help to anybody. Are you out there? First characteristic of David is David had a desire for excellence. There's a, a verse of scripture in Psalm, I'm, I'm sorry, not Psalm, uh, Mark chapter 7, where Jesus uh, ministers to a deaf, uh, a man that's deaf, and he has an impediment in his speech. He takes him off away from the crowd, it says there's a multitude there. He takes him away from the multitude a little bit, sticks his uh, fingers in his ears, and then spits on the guy's tongue. And he looks up and he says, the pathra, which is Greek for be opened. And immediately his ears were opened and the string of his tongue was loosed and he began to speak clearly. And it says in, in Mark chapter 7 verse 37, it says that the, they were astonished. The multitude was astonished. And they made this statement. They said, he doeth all things well. He makes the deaf to hear. He makes the dumb to speak. He doeth all things well. Most translation says he does things with excellence. 
Not everybody has that. Not everybody will choose to develop that. There's such a, an epidemic in the world today, not, not just the church world, but in the world today, to just get by, just do enough to get by. People that just do enough to get by never really get ahead and succeed in the way God wants them to. One of the keys, one of the characteristics, if you want to be used of God, if you want to walk in the fullness of God's plan for your life, is to develop excellence. That was the characteristic of David. Not once he got to the palace, not once he was anointed to be king and crowned and and came to the realization that he's got some real responsibility here. It's when he was out there taking care of a few sheep. And we don't know how rich Jesse was. David's job could have been carrying just a few. As a matter of fact, in the next chapter, when he goes and stands before Goliath, his brother, his oldest brother, Eliab, he's the one that looks like he's the hotshot. He tries to ridicule him in front of the other soldiers. He said, who'd you leave those few sheep with when you came over here? I know your naughtiness. I know what you're about. You're just trying to gain attention for yourself. What happened to those few sheep that you're in charge of? Well, we don't know if he's just really trying to ridicule David. And so he's just uh, minimizing the job that he has or if there really were just a few sheep there's no way for us to know but regardless those few sheep were valuable no matter how many there were and david considered it a matter of well i'm getting ahead of myself but he considered himself he considered it something that was important enough to take his job seriously and that's one of the things that drove him to excellence and here's the next one that says it says he was a cunning player first of all the second characteristic is a mighty valiant man. A mighty valiant man. Now this is an interesting phrase. Because it's, um, it's talking about something. Relative to David's courage. You know if you're going to get anywhere in the things of God. You're going to have to operate in courage. It takes courage to stand up. It takes courage. To obey God. It takes courage to stand in the face of the devil. And many of your friends or your co-workers, or your family, or whoever else it might be, to do what God has for you to do. If you remember, the first thing that, uh, that God told Joshua, he's kind of in a tough spot because he's following Moses, the one that stood face-to-face with God, went up into the mountain and came back where nobody said that anybody could uh, survive that and so forth. The thing that God told Joshua is that he would stand with him or he'd be able to stand before him. Let me get to, uh, let me change my application here. Joshua chapter 1. Let me read this. Beginning in verse 1. Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all these people under the land, which I, I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this land, and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. Now notice verse 5. There shall not be any man able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. Now what would you like? I mean, having God stand there and tell you this face to face... No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Wow. Really? I know a lot of people that take that and just start looking for a fight. Wouldn't have anything to worry about there, would you? It sounds like it's an absolute victory statement. 
Much like the statements of victory that are made to us. We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world and so forth. Every, uh, where is it? Verse 5. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. And then verse 6. Be strong and of good courage. Why? If God's going to stand before you. Stand with you like he did with Moses. Be with you like he was with Moses. Never fail you or forsake you. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. What is there to be courageous about? I mean, doesn't that kind of take care of the courage part? Well, we think so because we think courage is the absence of fear. And if God says that nobody will be able to stand before you, what is there ever to be afraid of? But there are going to be a lot of things Joshua is going to face and you and I are going to face and that David faced that there was much to be afraid of. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing what God told you to do in face of fear. And that was a characteristic of David. God told Joshua, be strong and of good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Verse 7. Only be thou strong and very courageous. That thou mayest observe to do according to all the law. Apparently it's going to take courage to keep the law. Courage to keep the word. Which Moses thy servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left. That thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Verse 8. We all know verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Doing the word is what brings you success. Verse 9, have I not commanded thee, be strong and of good courage. God says to Joshua three times, be strong and of good courage. Now, anytime I've had God say something to me more than once, he's trying to get his point across. Isn't that true for you? God told Joshua three times, be strong and of good courage. Joshua winds up telling the people what God said. And they said, we'll be with you. Don't worry. Just be strong and of good courage. And so that's what he had to do. He faced a lot of situations that he was afraid. He faced a lot of situations where there was good reason for him to be afraid. Same thing with David. Now, we can talk about a lot of things and and the stuff that... uh, Uh, that you're already aware of. I'm sure David needed courage when he went out against the lion and the bear that took the sheep. I'm sure David needed courage when he went out against Goliath. I'm sure there were many times that we don't have record of where David faced fearful situations where it took courage. Now, he didn't have to go develop this courage. It was something that he was ready for when the situation came along. And folks, that is so huge. That's a part of the desire for excellence. A part of developing yourself is so that you're ready when trouble comes. Because trouble's coming. You've got some of the, ch- of the church world crying out to God saying, Oh, Lord, I want to know why did you let this happen to me? Well, whoever told you that trouble wasn't coming? You need to find out who that was and see who lies. Trouble is coming. The only question is, are you going to be ready for it when it comes? If you develop yourself ahead of time, if you're disciplined, if you're diligent... To develop what God has put on the inside of you. Then you'll be ready. Smith Wigglesworth said. Don't wait till you need faith to get it. That's good advice. See that's all part of courage as well. If you're going to develop courage. You're going to have to take care of. The fears before they're facing you. 
You're going to have to deal with yourself. You're going to have to build on the inside of your spirit through the confession of the word. Meditating in the word, just like God told Joshua. You're going to have to put these things on the inside of you, knowing and working through these things, working through these scenarios in your own thinking, in your own mind. What would I do if this happened? Well, if this happened, I'd stand on the word. Well, then I better put that word on the inside of my heart now and get ready. See, if you make decisions up front, if you have the courage to face the situations and scenarios and the probabilities of life, then you're ready and you're prepared when they come. David seemed to be that kind of person. We know when Goliath starts making his threats, David didn't have to go get ready. He was all ready. He was ready for the situation when it came. That's part of being courageous. So he was a mighty man, of, uh, a mighty valiant man. Notice the next one. It says he was a man of war. Now, some of these things really kind of work together in, in uh, the things that we know about David relative to uh, um, the, going to take the, the sheep back from the lion and the bear and, and facing Goliath and, and so forth. But there's a, there's a distinction here that I want to make. One is he had courage. Obviously, he had courage. We see that in, in what he was willing to do. But the next thing where it says he was a man of war, David was a man of principle. David was a man of principle. Now, here's the difference. Courage is the, the willingness to do what needs to be done, to do what God directs you to do in spite of your feelings in, in the face of fear. Principle is a moral code. It's a standard. It's, a, it's a, an inward knowing of right and wrong and not being willing to accept wrong. Don't ever go to war with a man of principle. You can't win. And that's one of the reasons why the Bible says go to your adversary and talk to them. Because, see, you may be a a man of principle and they may be too. Your principles may disagree. And if you can't come to the place where you can agree on how you're going to handle the situation and come to some kind of agreement, you're going to have an everlasting war. One that nobody can win. Principle is the willingness to fight for what you know is right. There's not too many people nowadays in, in uh, the leadership of our country anyway that seem to have much principles. Everybody's willing to back up. Everybody's willing to compromise. Well, if you're willing to compromise on a situation that's not critical, that's okay. But there are some things that are worth fighting for. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, you don't always want to be ready to go to war. I mean, people die in war. Well, for a man of principle, there are some things that are worse, worse than dying for. Living contrary to your principles is worse than dying for a person of principle. Jesus was this way. Jesus refused to compromise on the issues that God directed him to, to show us here on the earth. It didn't matter to him who was against him. It didn't matter if he stood alone. He told the truth. He held fast to the truth. It became a principle for him. Now, you could call these things anything you want to. I like to call them core principles because they really, principles really define who you are or who you are not. If you're a person of principle, everybody already knows it. You don't have to advertise it. If you're a person of principle, you're somebody that's already set the boundaries for your life. This is the way it is for me. Now, it doesn't have to be that way for everybody, but this is the way it's going to be for me. People of principle don't give up. That's one of the ways you can tell who has them and who doesn't. 
It's funny to me when you see politicians talk about their core principles. Well, these are the guiding principles of my life. And you'll see them vote or, or legislate or something against their principles. Well, those aren't principles. Those were ideas. It's also interesting to me how so many times when somebody gets caught doing the wrong thing, they'll stand up and say, that's not who I am. Well, of course it's who you are. That's why you're humiliating yourself in front of the whole world saying you're sorry. Of course that's who you are. But everybody's trying to make excuses for themselves. They're trying to pretend that they have principles, but they just showed that we're not holding to them. Are you out there? These are things that God found in David. These are things that qualified David to be a man after God's own heart. We'll move forward. And and folks, I hope you understand. I could take each one of these and teach a week on it. But I'm just trying to get you to get the gist of this out so that you see who God picked when he chose chose David. Next one, it says, he was cunning and playing. That's a desire for excellence. A mighty valiant man, that's courage. A man of war, he's a man of principle. The next one is, he was prudent in matters. That shows his responsibility. Prudent is an interesting word because it's spoken of prudence. The Bible speaks of being prudent in both your affairs or your actions and in your words. So what we can know by this is David was not a guy that just threw his words around. He must have been careful with his words and that he was responsible in the business affairs, which is what the word matters means. is talking about business affairs and specifically money. David was somebody that was discreet, cautious, careful, sensible, and guarded in his speech and his actions. Now, let's go back to David being a shepherd. What was shepherding like in David's day? Well, like I said, whether it was a big flock or a small flock really depended on Jesse's wealth more than anything else. We don't have any reason to think Jesse was a very rich man. I mean, we would just uh, assume that he was average guy, middle class, middle class maybe. So there, there was a smaller, perhaps, flock of sheep. But that flock of sheep was expected to grow from season to season, springtime to springtime. And if they were well taken care of, and David seemed to be somebody that took care of the sheep well enough not to let a lion or a bear take even one of them. Now, I don't know about you, but I know most people would take the position that if a lion or a bear just got one, they'd come back to their dad and say, well, dad, I only lost one. But then a week or two later, a bear came by, and then I lost another. But that's pretty good for the year. But David wasn't willing to go for that. David wouldn't give up an inch. He was responsible for the care and the feeding of these sheep, which is, again, why I said that he wasn't there when Samuel came to Jesse's house. Now, I don't know what the other boys are doing. Maybe they had a farm, uh, you know, closer to home chores or something like that. But David, because he was responsible for the sheep, whatever the size of the flock was, he had to take them away. He had to take them away from home. He had to take them probably away from the village into lands which uh, uh, the pastures that would uh, sustain the sheep. And you don't walk a long way with a, with a flock of sheep and then come back at the end of the day. You're usually spending several days out there. Now, in, in that respect, David's going to have to take provisions with him. He's going to have to take provisions, food for himself. Probably not any need for money. There's not a 7-Eleven to stop by there for a big gulp along the way. So he probably doesn't need any money, but he does need resources or provisions in some manner. He's going to need food for himself, and he's going to need to take whatever, he's, whatever he might need in case one or, many, or more of the sheep fall into trouble or need, uh, need tending to. So David's got to plan all this out. He's responsible for the sheep, so he's the one that's got to take care of all these things, which means he's got to be a planner, 
And he's got to be somebody that carries things through. It's, a, it's an amazing thing to me how so many people think that, that God's put them here on the earth to give other people ideas of what to do. Like they're the only ones that can get an idea. Many of the people that I know of are so busy taking care of the things that they need to do, the things that God has already given them to do, they don't have time to sit around and dream like everybody else and come up with all these far-fetched ideas, which most of them wouldn't work anyway. I, I know one thing that, uh, that has cut down a lot on, on my thing, and people on the staff handle things and people differently than I do, and, and that's probably good. But there are some people on the staff that are constantly getting ideas from other people. Now, here's what you ought to do with this part of the of the uh, the church that you're responsible for. Or this is, you ought to do this with this group. Or you ought to do this with that, that group. Whenever somebody comes up to me and says, you know what we need to do at the church, Pastor Mike? And then gives me their idea. I say, well, well, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't you start that up? That usually ends it right there. Because, see, they don't want to be responsible. They just want to have the ideas. I don't know about you, but when it comes to working with people, I want people that will carry responsibility. I don't want somebody that just does their job and then if it doesn't work out, bail out and say, well, Pastor Mike told me. I want them to be responsible. I want them to, I want to know that I can turn it loose and know that it's being taken care of in the way that I would do it myself. It's tough to find responsible people nowadays, folks, because nobody seems to have the, the, um, uh, the prudent element to them either in words or actions. But that was something that David, that God found in David. He was prudent in matters. The next thing he says is a comely person. Comely really means appearance. It's talking about the appearance of David. In other words, it says that David had the discipline to take care of himself and how he looked. Should I go further with that one? It means handsome of physique. It's talking about a well-groomed and well-developed man. David took care of himself. Now, let me ask you this. What has he got to take care of himself for? The sheep? It just shows who he was. It shows the discipline of his life. Folks, I hate to say this, and I really don't want to step on anybody's toes, and and I can point fingers back at myself because... We can all improve in things. But the Bible says that we should be certain ways because we belong to God. It says that our moderation should be known to all men. Let me use an example I think you can relate to. Any of you seen that uh, the new movie American Sniper? Heard all the hoorah about Michael Moore and what he said and all this kind of stuff. My favorite is tweet last weekend about what would Jesus do? I guess it was on Saturday. He said, tomorrow is Sunday in Sunday school. What would Jesus do? I know. He'd get up on a building and shoot people in the back. Well, obviously, it doesn't take very long looking at somebody's life to see whether or not they're really concerned about what would Jesus do. Michael Moore doesn't seem to make the cut. But the principle is very sound. We should be known by the way we conduct ourselves. Spiritually and physically. Because our, the Bible says our spirit and our bodies belong to God. Now, folks, I'm, I'm not overboard as far as health nuts and concerned and, and, and all this kind of stuff. I'm not a vegetarian. I like meat. God made meat. He made meat to enjoy. 
Like it or not, he did. Doesn't mean you have to eat it, but that's the way it is. It's what the Bible says. But the Bible says that we ought to be known by our moderation. The Bible says that we ought to be known by the way that we conduct our lives. And you need to know this. If a person's not disciplined physically, they're not going to be disciplined spiritually. It's just a fact. You can see these things in our lives. And each one of us are responsible. David was disciplined. That was one of the characteristics that God saw in him. It's one of the characteristics that the servant of Saul, the servant of the king, thought important enough to say about this guy. He was a comely person. Finally, the last one is the Lord's with him. It shows David was spiritual. He was a spiritual man. One of the things that, um, um, and and we could go any number of ways with this. Uh, It certainly doesn't mean David's perfect because he made some mistakes serious and, and uh, grievous mistakes later on in his life. But one of the things that, um, uh, that David writes in the Psalms, Psalm 16, verse 11, I believe it is. He said, in your presence is fullness of joy. One of the things that David understood, David knew God well enough. He was closely enough acquainted with the Lord himself to know what it was like to be in his presence. Now, again, there's nobody training him for these things. We don't have any reason to think that there's anybody out there with him leading him to, to know some of this stuff. He doesn't have any teachers that's spending hours and hours a day showing him the word or anything else. He just takes the initiative to find God on his own. And he did. One of the things that it says about David in Psalm 132, I believe it is. It shows David's attitude, and this was, uh, this was not when he was a young boy, young shepherd boy. This was later on when he began uh, to be king. But it showed his attitude toward the things of God and the house of God. He said, I won't build my house until I've built the house of God. I won't take rest in my own home until I've made a place for the spirit of God and the presence of God to dwell. Now, God tells him later, you're not going to be the one to do it. And so he doesn't live up to that, but his, his attitude was such that that was the way he wanted things to be. He was willing to put the things of God before the things of himself. It's not too many people that are willing to do that nowadays. Most everybody wants to do for themselves first, and then they'll make a deal with God to do something big for them later. That didn't seem to be David's attitude. David was a spiritual person. David knew the presence of God. He valued the presence of God. And he found what that meant. He found that that meant that God was on his side against the lion. He's on his side against the bear. Now, folks, I know it's easy for us to just kind of read the words and think about the story in a, in a real, you know, warm, fuzzy way. But think about going against a lion. Think about going against a bear. I don't know anybody that would even want to choose between one of those two. Who would you rather have, the lion or the bear? How about the peacock? <laughs> but David found that the name of the Lord would, would, would uh, deliver him. He found out that God was on his side against obstacles and adversaries that were much stronger, much more deadly than himself. So that when the time came around when he came before Goliath, he was ready. He looked at Goliath and he said, what is this? He's not a lion or he's not a bear. I get an easy day today. 
It's because he developed these things when nobody was looking. Not one person is taking a look at David. Not one person is overseeing David. Not one person is seeing how well he plays. They probably just hear the music through the hillsides. David probably didn't even know anybody heard him. Because he's certainly not playing for them. Nobody knew. Not even his brothers knew that he was a person of courage or a person of principle. That he'd fought the lion or the bear. If so, why would Eliab be making fun of him when he stands before Goliath, or stands before Saul, about to go before Goliath? He didn't even tell his brothers about it. That shows his prudence in matters too, doesn't it? Shows his responsibility. It shows what kind of person he was. He took care of himself. That was something that was known about him. Finally, he was a spiritual person. These five characteristics will make you stand before kings too. That may not be kings of nations, but it will be leaders in whatever area of gift God has given you. These characteristics are the things that will make you and I people after God's own heart. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to develop these things in our own hearts, in our own lives. Lord, we thank you that we've got so much more than David ever had. We have so much more than David ever gained just because we've made Jesus the Lord of our lives and because the Spirit of God dwells in us. Lord, give us the same attitude that David had so that we have a desire for excellence just like he did or even greater than he did. That we would be people of courage like he was. That we would be people of principles not willing to compromise one little bit between right and wrong that we would be disciplined Lord and responsible in the things that you've given us for we will have to stand before you one day and our desire is to hear you say well done good and faithful servant only responsible people will hear that finally Lord help us to have a heart for you and a heart for the things of God like we've never had before stir in us a desire Lord to be people of the spirit of God We ask in Jesus' precious name that it might be said of us when we reach heaven that we were men and women after your heart, just as David was. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.